Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, joined by Gabe Pacheco. We are the Katie Helper Show. You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI.org 99.5 FM. Or find us on SoundCloud. <laughs> iTunes, <laughs> Patreon. Dude, give us the money, money on Patreon. Give us your money. <laughs> Show us the money. Give us your money. Yeah. Um, so we don't have to do ads for, you know, evil companies. Yeah. Whatever. Just give us some money. Throw us some bones. Some uh, clamshells. Shekels. Clam shekels. Guys, give us your money. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, really easy. It's so easy. You just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. <laughs> patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Just put in some a credit card. Um, you can link to whatever stuff. $5 a month for bonus content. I don't know if you realize how little that is. That is, like, you could comb this, like, you could just walk around, I think, and find pennies on the street. Or you don't have to go to that extreme. That's a little time. You buy yourself a metal detector. <laughs> And you start combing the beaches. How much is a metal detector? I always wonder why (laughs) more people don't have that. You'll recoup the money that you spent on that metal detector in no time. In no time. Um, You know what we should do is we should give out a metal detector at our next live taping. We should have a raffle. We should do raffle. On today's episode, I speak to Christine Ahn, the founder and international coordinator of Women Cross DMZ which is an organization for peace in Korea and women's leadership in peace building. Then I do a little bit of a role reversal and I play you an interview that I did where I was the person being asked questions. I spoke to Emma Bigland from the Young Turks Politics. So Emma interviewed me about some issues including Israel and Trump's placement of children in tender age shelters. We will be doing a live taping of the Katie Halper Show on June 30th at Caveat in New York City. That's 21A Clinton Street. And you can go to caveat.nyc to get tickets and get them for a discounted price if you go now. You can use the promo code KHALPERINSIDER. That's K-H-A-L-P-E-R-I-N-S-I-D-E-R. Again, that's KHALPERINSIDER. And our special guest will be none other than Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank, of course, is the author of Listen Liberal or Whatever Happens to the Party of the People and What's the Matter of Kansas. He writes for places like Harper's, The Guardian, and he is the founder of The Baffler magazine. And Thomas Frank has a brand spanking new book coming out called Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. And it's a collection of his writings. See you there, June 30th, 7 p.m., at Caveat at 21 Clinton Street in Manhattan with our special guest, Thomas Frank. Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un. And this is like, you know, we, we should have a segment called like This Week in Liberals Who Want the World to Blow Up in a Nuclear Armageddon. I don't understand. Like we see this with Putin. People are like, Donald Trump is a dangerous, um, a dangerous sociopathic monster who, uh, Cheeto Mussolini. Cheeto Mussolini. That's the a, a favorite term by the uh, the the hackish. The hackish, uh, still with her ish, still with her ests. Um, and at the same time, he needs to be more aggressive and combative with Vladimir Putin, who is a nuclear armed what? So like they think he's evil but not stupid, right? They think Donald Trump and and I think people with liberal brain rot. 
which we'll call um, LBR, right? They have this idea that Trump and Putin are like the moral equivalents, except that Putin's not an idiot and Trump is. Right, because Putin was the head of the KGB. KGB, yeah. Yes. So, again, that still doesn't explain what they want him to do or why they want him to be more combative with this guy. Don't you want them not to be at war? I know I know, I sound like a broken record, but it's like so ridiculous. Uh, the best case scenario is that he's able to uh, keep us on peaceable terms with these other superpowers. Right. Or rogue rogue states. Yeah. Um, he's meeting with uh, Kim. Yeah, they had, a, there was a, so President. Special K. Special K. So President, on Tuesday, June 12th, President Donald Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un concluded an extraordinary nuclear summit. We're very proud of what took place today. Uh, I think our whole relationship with North Korea and the Korean Peninsula is uh, it's going to be a very much different uh, situation than it has in the past. With the U.S. president pledging unspecified security guarantees to the North to the North and Kim recommitting to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Overnight, after a historic handshake <laughs> and then this pat on the back, President Trump just moments ago trumpeting his biggest deal yet. It is right there. It's within our reach. It's going to be there. It's going to happen. The president saying in an all-night high-stakes summit, the U.S. and Kim Jong-un agreed to complete denuclearization. That's the big thing. The president also announcing an end to what he called war games, joint U.S. and South Korean military exercises in the region, labeling them provocative. Wow. This is like what this is everything that Superman wanted in Quest for Peace. Uh, yeah. And now we now know that what liberals, centrist liberals want is at odds with what Superman wants. They are the, Han not Hamlet, Lark Luther, what's his name? It's Lex, Lorth <laughs> Luther's, Lex Luther. Lex Luther. So people are just, again, freaking out. No U.S. president has ever agreed to meet with a North Korean dictator before. They've sought this for decades. Kim Jong-un has wanted this for years. His father wanted it before him. His grandfather wanted it before him. All U.S. presidents have been asked. All U.S. presidents has considered it, at least to a certain degree. None of them have said yes. Why did this U.S. president agree to this meeting? Why give North Korea a one-on-one, -on -one, in-person summit with the American president? Yeah, Trump announced he will be freezing U.S. military war games with the ally South Korea. They're on the upset. South Korea's war games with the United States, as President Trump called them, are not war games at all, but a necessary set of defensive exercises undertaken in the shadow of an aggressive adversary. Right. I saw people on Facebook yeah. upset that uh, he's speaking with a tyrant. Yeah. Even worse, Trump signaled that he would like to end the American troop presence in South Korea. The North Korean dictator and the North Korean government appear to have not promised change of any kind in their nuclear program or in any other policy. Literally, they gave up nothing. They promised nothing. In exchange for that generous offer, President Trump gave North Korea this royal wedding-style summit in which North Korea was billed as a nation equal in stature to the United States, and the North Korean dictator was billed as an international leader equal in stature to the president of the United States. Uh, you know, but you can't change the fact that he's a tyrant, don't we want? We want the open, we just want to have open Dialogue, channels of right. communication. You know, he should be like, I'm not going to talk to you unless you do X, Y, Z, and he won't do X, Y, Z, and then we just won't be talking to them. I mean, what's funny is that people 
the people mad at Trump for like talking to this guy are the same people who defended Obama when conservatives were mad at Obama for saying he would talk to Iran or North Korea. Would you, as president, meet with the leaders of a country like North Korea? Obama extraordinarily said, I'd meet with him. Senator Obama made his intentions crystal clear on the campaign trail. I will meet, not just with our friends, but with our enemies. President Obama likes talking to dictators. He would meet with some of these madmen without any preconditions. Obama is bowing and scraping before dictators. It literally is, you just swap out Obama and Trump, right? If you're a lib. And by lib, we don't mean our friends who voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, We don't mean people who are a little bit to our right, like to the right of me and Gabe. We mean like people who really embrace the line of um, if, uh, you know, people who live in areas that voted for Trump deserve to lose their health care. Those type of people. The the cold hearted. The cold hearted. How, I think you just how can have we a, define have a, these liberals? Yeah, they're I not think you just, need to have a sharp definition. I know, of who right? The because my mom are. is like, "Well, don't don't say that." What is it? Centrist libs, like, you know, Max Blumenthal calls them it libs. Um, is it identity politics liberals or ideal? Ide- I can't remember what it is, but we're going to work on it. How? It's true because we don't want to alienate people, so we're going to have to figure this out. Listeners, feel free to help us define a term. Centrist is okay. Um. Because like, well, there are people who kind of like uh, really appreciate the status quo as it was during the Obama administration and that didn't necessarily see the faults in that status quo, which was untenable, Uh, the untenable state that Obamacare was in, the untenable state that uh, that we're in with uh, immigration in the U.S., the untenable state that we had with North Korea. The uh, the complete inequity that was that's continuing to grow this yeah. this divide between the ultra ultra wealthy and right. everyone else the haves and the have nots. So um, the, that they're looking back to this halcyon time that was pre-Trump, as though that was the utopia and that we were continuing to move forward, you know, without addressing any of these problems. Right. And now that Trump's in office. We've we've suddenly entered this age of Ragnarok. We've suddenly entered this time of uh, like extreme, like everything's upside down. When it's right. it, it's not. It, right. This is a, he's a logical uh, progression of everything that came before him. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. If you weren't if you weren't aware of, or I'm not going to blame you if you weren't aware of it. If you claim to be informed and you didn't care about or weren't aware of the immigration issues that Obama had, right? The way that he tried that he was the deporter in chief then you can't really talk now. Or people people who are like, for the first time ever, I realized that racism and misogyny are real. Like, it's it's been real for a while. Like, you are, if you're that out of touch um, that you're only realizing it now, that's fine, kind of, but just know that you weren't, your eyes weren't open before. Um, yeah. And you can't cling to the same... Things that you were clinging to before, and so I think a lot of the the libs that uh, that uh, <laughs> that are our I won't say straw man because they're you know the libs out there that that look at Trump as the only as the the pinata that we have to keep uh, bashing right. uh, rather than looking specifically at the policies that are the problem. Right. It doesn't matter who the boss is; the policies are what's right the issue. It's going to be another face on that pinata. Right. It's going to be another. What is a pinata? Donkey? Another. Yeah, it's gonna be another. Yeah. So we got a pin paper the tail mache. On. Another. Yeah, exactly. Stuffed I, suit. Exactly. Another stuffed suit. Um, Trump shook ha- his hand. A handshake for the history books. 
But who had the upper hand? Body language expert Tanya Ryman says you can learn a lot from all that touchy-feely stuff going on between the two leaders. There it is, the all-important first handshake. Who wins this battle? The person who extends their hand first is typically the more powerful. That was Donald Trump. He won this hands down. The handshake lasted 12 seconds. Notice how President Trump is first to let go and directs Kim to turn to the cameras. But yeah, so all these people who were who are furious that Trump shook his hand are the same people who were rightfully mad at, at conservatives when conservatives slammed Obama for, for saying he was committed to diplomacy. That's what you want. You don't negotiate with friends. You negotiate with enemies, right? So that's one thing. Second of all, they're making it look like it was unprecedented. So you know Jonathan Capehart? He, he was the guy who a while ago like lied about Bernie Sanders um, in Chicago. We actually talked about him on the show uh, back in the day. And, you know, it was one of many lies that were circling around Sanders at that point. This guy doesn't have a good track record. His husband is like works for Clinton, but he's a big journalist and uh, he posted something on Twitter. And and with that handshake, President Trump has done something no other president has done. Legitimized the brutal dictator of North Korea, the most repressive regime in the world. OK, so what's annoying about that tweet, which got 20,000 likes and 7,000 uh, retweets, What's annoying about that is that it implies that this is like an unprecedented moment of a United States president, like engaging in problematic body language with a repressive dictator. Like uh, when we're friends with Ariel Sharon. Oh, Sharon and Yahoo. But these people don't even care about them. Like they would yeah. be like, oh, no, those guys are, you or know, Manuel Noriega. How about Noriega? How about um, the Or how Saudi... about when we were friends with uh, Saddam Hussein? Yeah, exactly. There's a photo of Rumsfeld <laughs> shaking his hand. Yeah. Or how about just Obama and George Bush? holding hands with um, the Saudi king. Yeah. Or every president that we have touching the Saudi orb. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the uh, so to speak, the proverbial Saudi orb. But yeah, I mean, that to me is like, I'm not that surprised that they don't care about, Pino that like Capehart doesn't care about Pinochet, doesn't consider like Netanyahu, because we, we know all like, like we were saying before, like Palestinians just don't count for some reason. Um, but come on, like, you got photos of multiple presidents holding hands with with the Saudi king. Uh, they are like the beheading capital of the world. So that's you're wrong on that front, Capehart. And then you're wrong also because like, what is the takeaway? You wanted Trump to everyone's so mad they shook hands. Like I have this fantasy of liberals whose desire it is for Trump to like shake hands with uh, with un by like but putting one of those buzzers in his hands or something? Like, what is it that they want him to do? Like, well, those it, electrifying If you have an embargo against another country, if there's no communication right. with the other country, then you can't, uh, you can't influence them with soft power. Right. Which is this idea that they, they live in a... There are people in the U.S. that live in a, wor a fantasy world that somehow democracy is going to spontaneously uh, erupt out of these repressive regimes... Uh, because they want to have our Coca-Cola. Yeah. You know, because they want, they want, they think that we will have trade with them. But there's no, you can't have that if you don't open a conduit. Right. Right. I, like, yeah. like the, a reason that their government is repressive is because they think that we're still at war. Right. Which we've never officially ended with North Korea. So having a handshake is a great start to, 
you know, easing those tensions. And maybe then uh, Kim won't be on his on his guard. Yeah. I mean, I just don't get what they wanted him to do, literally, like refuse to shake his hand. Or I do think, what's the thing with the buzzer in it? What is, you know what I'm talking about? They could do Frank's, a pound. They could do a they pound. They could do a pound. Or what's the thing where you like almost, I think that happened in, in um Like a hangover, bully move. A bully move where you like go to shake someone's hand and then you like bring your hand back. Yeah. And just you know, like comb your hair you back. you comb your hair. Like you do a Fonz move. It's like the handshake Fonz. Or you'll appreciate this. I, I found an image of like the Joker in some movie giving someone a handshake and the other person like melts. Yeah. Anyway, but I think we could do a whole music video of like U.S. presidents touching dictators. Uh, a nice like um, <laughs> uh, mashup. Kino on dictators. Kino on dictator. Yeah. Like I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand in the background. I'm very, very excited to be talking to Christine Ahn, who is the founder and international coordinator of Women Cross DMZ, Women Mobilizing for Peace in Korea, and Women's Leadership in Peacebuilding. She's also a mom, a writer, and a peace activist, and she's based in Honolulu. So, Christine, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, Katie. Uh, can you tell us what you are doing right now, what you're getting ready to do, and also what your thoughts are on the summit that just took place? Well, I'm just packing my suitcase because I'm about to head to South Korea to spend a week um, going on a, a peace study tour. Um, most of the time I'll be spending on Jeju Island, which is off the coast of the Korean Peninsula. And it's the 70th anniversary of a massacre called the April 4th Massacre. And I don't know, up to 80,000 um, islanders were massacred. It was um, during a period of U.S. military government in South Korea. Most Americans don't realize this, but Korea was one country. It was divided, actually, by the United States in agreement uh, with the former Soviet Union. And uh, for three years, in 1945 to 1948, the U.S. militarily uh, had a military government in South Korea and basically installed in a leader puppet government. And um, there was massive resistance, obviously, to the U.S. military government, to uh, the division of Korea. And Jeju Island was one of those sites where uh, the islanders, being kind of fiercely sovereign people, uh, rose up. And they were protesting uh, the creation of two, like basically two, a vote to create two separate Koreas. And um, and it led to uh, basically a ma massive crackdown against the protesters. And then there was basically an order from the U.S. military government to launch something that's like a scorched earth campaign. And all the villagers uh, basically were um, called this, labeled as communists, even though you, when you go back through the U.S. archives, they know they, it was clear that the U.S. knew that what, it wasn't a communist uprising, but it was more just a nationalist, uh, desire and sentiment for the Korean people to not base the division of Korea. So I'm actually going to judge you to be part of a study tour and then to actually, um, pick up this important moment where uh, we have two summits behind us. We had the uh, April 27th North and South Korean summit, 
and then the June 12th summit between the U.S. and, and the DPRK. And right now is the moment. Um, the peace process is moving forward, and we have to ensure that it is going to include civil society. It will include especially women's peace organizations who have been basically on the front lines for decades um, calling for an end of this war, calling for a peace treaty. So I will be uh, gathering uh, with some of the South Korean government and civil society and uh, the foreign community, especially the countries with embassies that have feminist foreign policies to start to have that conversation. How will women's groups be involved in this peace process? So can you tell me about how you, um, your thoughts about the the recent summit, uh, the June 12th summit, and your reaction to it, and whether you were surprised to that, and also whether you were surprised to the reactions to the uh, summit? So your reaction to the summit so- and your reaction to the reactions. I know it's very meta. I know. Well, I mean, first of all, let's just be honest. It is surreal to see uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, right. I mean, two uh, leaders that are obviously so detested around the world. Um, but as somebody who has been, um, you know, trying to make that happen for uh, almost two decades, it was uh, it was an incredible thing to see uh, a U.S. president with the leader of the North Korean government. And as much as we uh, may have our personal feelings against uh, these two kind of autocratic leaders, right. uh, the reality is, is we are away from last year's fire and fury. We are uh, no longer on the brink of a new Korean war. Mm-hmm. We have seen uh, a commitment to, um, you know, begin the process of trust building. Uh, you know, obviously the agreement that was signed between um, President Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un is very thin on details, but I think it uh, is quite significant in the fact that uh, there has never been a U.S. standing president that has met a North Korean leader, and none of the past agreements were actually signed by a, a you know a North Korean leader or uh, a U.S. president. It has always been negotiated by by other uh, representatives of the governments, and so I think that's quite significant. And um, I think you know while there has been so much focus on uh, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. Um, Clearly, that's what the Trump administration said they were going into to do and to to get done. Um, I still think it's early to completely write that off just because it wasn't in that first agreement. What I think both sides left with was actually security guarantees. And I think this is a very important piece that is, is missed in the in the analysis of what that uh, summit was about. On the North Korean side, we heard Donald Trump say that uh, the U.S. was willing to uh, halt its military exercises with South Korea. We saw that announcement yesterday by the South Korean government that they agreed to that. Um, and so we know that that has been a huge factor for North Korea because Contrary to the uh, perception that these are just benign military exercises, they are, in fact, what Donald Trump said. They are provocative. They simulate the invasion of North Korea. They have the term decapitation strikes. They include nuclear bombers. And so this has been a huge issue for North Korea to say, 
we feel threatened. This is why we need to pursue a nuclear weapon to prevent a regime change first strike uh, from the U.S. And so from the North Korean side, that was a big gain from their part. And from the U.S. side, um, North Korea agreed to start to dismantle its um, its missile test site. We know that Donald Trump came into office saying, um, never will this happen, never will North Korea be able to strike the U.S. mainland with a long-range missile with a nuclear warhead. And I think this is actually, he, this is a concrete action towards that. And we know that since uh, last November, North Korea has not tested a missile or a nuclear weapon. Obviously, the Olympics afforded that, that tremendous window to do that. But we have seen, I think, a huge step towards uh, what both sides want. The U.S. wants um, CVID. The North Koreans want a peace treaty. This is the step to actually get us there. We have what I think the peace movement has been calling for, which is a freeze for freeze. North Korea is freezing its nuclear missile program. The U.S. freezes its military exercises. I think this is a huge success. And yet the response from liberal media to uh, Democrats, to the disarmament community, it's been, has been so surprising. And, and I feel like it's this feeling of like anything but Trump. Yeah. And um, for Koreans, which really, you know, the, the, the movements, the peace movements and the leaders have really been the driving force of this Korea peace train. And so to basically throw sand in the gears of this train that's in motion feels um, so like, where does this, where does the left or liberals stand right. in terms of seeing peace? progress for peace and uh, and really the reduction of an arms race that is, you know, potentially the most dangerous region in the world. Right. Yeah, I was really shocked, even though I, I know I shouldn't be, but I was shocked by how upset some liberals were about this. Um, it seemed like they were more upset that there was something that Trump could spin um, as good for him than they would have been if he had failed and we had gone to war. I know. It makes no sense. I absolutely agree with you. It's a little bit um, dumbfounding yeah. to me. that I mean, to see Senator um, Tammy Duckworth, yeah. for example, introduced a resolution with Chris Murphy saying that we're going to prevent um, the U.S. troops from coming home and that this is, uh, you know, basically... Uh, not what our allies in South Korea want. And it's like, hello, are you kidding me? You know, in fact, we know that actually when um, President Moon, before he came to uh, the United States for the first summit with uh, Donald Trump, he actually sent his senior envoy, Moon Chung-in, who is basically known as the guy that floats um, kind of in new innovative ideas. And he is the one that said, uh, what about... Uh, potentially canceling or scaling back the military exercises. He was totally attacked for it, but this is a time that is yeah. really long overdue. I mean, why is, uh, I recall, you know, during the Olympics, there was a question that was like, um, oh my God. Oh, Jonathan Chang of the Wall Street Journal tweeted, uh, oh my God, this is amazing. There are actually North Koreans in South Korea. And then somebody responded, um, back to that. 
Why is it so normal for 30,000 U.S. troops to be on the Korean Peninsula and not and so weird for there to be North Koreans in Korea? Right. So I feel like, uh, you know, 70 years of division, 70 years of a U.S. military presence in South Korea has just, you know, it's become like, you know, just what the reality is. And I think that if there is a peace process between North and South Korea, this is a fact. And I feel like, you know, this is a come to Jesus moment for the disarmament community, which I feel I'm at loggerheads right. oftentimes because they've become technocrats that are so singularly focused on denuclearization when, in fact, you know, you look at Sipri just released a, a, a chart of, you know, who has the greatest number, like who are all the nuclear weapons or nuclear armed states. And North Korea's got like six to 20. And like, you know, Russia and the, and China and the United States, you know, these are the giants. Right. And why, um, why aren't we celebrating this path towards, uh, de-escalating tensions, towards disarmament, towards potentially the reduction of, you know, the massive proliferation of U.S. bases around the world. I feel like this is a moment for the peace movement to actually have an honest conversation and for liberals to be challenged by progressives that say, why is this, uh, why is, you know, why are we responding in this way? Right. And even though we may oppose Trump on every other issue, this is good for Korea and this is good for Americans. This is good for um, security. The this planet, is good the for world. Reinvesting. Yeah. And this is good for reinvesting in things that actually give us security. Right. And also, it's not like, I mean, I think people honestly don't understand how it actually helps us if we don't have to worry, like the left, liberals, whatever, if anti-Trump people don't have to worry about stuff in like nuclear issues, right, or war issues, then we can focus more on the ripping families apart. Like all these horrible things that Trump is doing, it's not like Trump all of a sudden becomes a good person. I mean, I, I know this sounds so obvious, but I almost feel like we have to say this because some people think that if we think something that Trump does is good, it means we are like signing on to his other programs. And it kind of right. couldn't be and further from the truth. I think that's such a great point that you make, Katie, is, you know, why are we, uh, we are fighting, you know, I mean, basically the the left and progressives have been like, we've been burnt out and yeah. we've been fighting, you know, on every front. And so this is actually something that the Trump administration is doing that is good. I mean, really it's being driven by South Korea and North Korea. And so why don't we just allow that instead of fighting it and reinvest? I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Into things like that need attention right now. Like right. the fact that we are putting, you know, children in cages right. and separating them from their families. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. And do you have, speaking of families, do you have family in Korea? I do. I have family in South Korea and I feel I have made friends in North Korea. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, this is one of those things where Korean Americans, I mean, my mom um, used to say that you were, you were able to uh, take the train from Seoul to Pyongyang. And, you know, that it just was like not an issue because Korea wasn't divided. And so, um, you know, my father's family is from Chuncheon, which is right near the DMV. So I have no doubt that somehow, um, in past generations and extended families, I have family right. that um, are in North Korea. And how does your family feel uh, 
about this? Do you have family that's still there who uh, in South Korea have who you spoken to about this? I mean, yes, I have really conservative family, actually, Katie, mm. and uh, and they are very supportive of this, and it reflects very much the the polls in South Korea. Eighty eight percent of South Koreans support. Moon Jae in. Wow. And what is the leading factor is even though the economy is in, in crap, it's the fact that um, he has engaged with North Korea. He has advanced this diplomacy pro engagement line. And, you know, the, the result is actually there were um, local elections across South Korea last week. And he just killed it. His party just killed it. They won like you know, the majority of the governor and uh, local seats that were up for um, for re-election. And I think it's just he has that mandate from the Korean people across right. the political spectrum. And it's just a very small minority, 12 percent, uh, you know, this older generation, very hardline neocon right. um, that, you know, wants to um, go back to 2017, whereas, you know, the rest of Koreans are saying, this is good. We don't want to be at war. We want peace. And how about like deciding Korea for Korea? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, I don't, people are trying to, to say that like, some people are pretending that they're upset for kind of the sake of South Koreans. Um, but it seems like they were very receptive to what happened. I know. And, you know, this is another point that I feel I've been hearing a lot of criticism is, oh, my God, Donald Trump, he didn't bring up human rights. Right, right. And, yeah. you know, this is um, this is really a sore point for me because yeah. I feel like, you know, for those that are I mean, we know North Korea is, is like a authoritarian, brutal, repressive place. And, you know, the way that I see it is we are not going to be able to make a dent right. in North Korean human rights if we don't have a relationship with them. OK, right. and we know that there has been movements and progress towards improvement of North Korean human rights conditions when there is respectful engagement, for example, on the issue of disability, uh, the U.N., has succeeded in, you know, moving programs and progress towards improving the, um, the, the, the human rights of, of the, those with disabilities in, in, in North Korea. Where we haven't had much progress is where in areas that North Korea feels that their sovereignty is at risk. And so um, we have to um, come at it from a very pragmatic approach, which is, uh, first of all, um, we're not going to be able to move anything unless there is some kind of relationship. And secondly, let's think about how North Korea um, justifies, the government will justify exactly. the repression, the surveillance, the preventing of the North Koreans from leaving, um, the massive investment in military in preparation for war um, because of this ongoing state of war. And so that's what I have been kind of, um, you know, Trying to um, get through to liberals is if you want to improve human rights, you have to look at it from a prism of peace and engagement and diplomacy. That is what's going to improve it. We know that the, the head of the World Food Program came back from North Korea just a few weeks ago, and he said if there is a peace agreement, it will drastically improve the conditions for the daily lives of North Koreans. So, um, right. you know, 
let's try to shift the conversation on human rights into actually a pragmatic approach, not from this, like, I'm holier than thou. And uh, we can't engage with North Korea because that's a brutal dictatorship. And, you know, and again, I always say that is such BS. I mean, the, the United States is willing to have very close relationships with very brutal regimes. Saudi Arabia, um, and Israel. Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget what's happening in Israel yeah, right now. I don't really know the long history of U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia, but Americans have no freaking clue that actually uh, the United States in the Korean War, where 4 million people were killed in three years from 1950 to 53, that 80% of North Korean cities were leveled. Right. I mean, photographers and journalists that were there um, said basically felt like they were walking on the moon because the only thing that was standing were chimneys. Wow. Like that's, that's how insane. brutal. And so think about, um, you know, the North Korean society and the kind of um, paranoid um, siege mentality yeah. that has shaped the, the, the modern North Korean government and society today. So we are in a, in a this amount twice a day. It is so significant that we are actually in this process of dialogue and diplomacy with North Korea. We shouldn't poo-poo it. Right. It is a 68-year-old conflict. This is the longest-standing U.S. conflict. We have to celebrate it. We have to ensure that it succeeds because the alternative is terrifying. It is John Bolton. It is yes, the right. new uh, U.S. ambassador to South Korea, Harry Harris, the former head of the Pacific Command, who is so hardline on North Korea and China. So... We have to be very careful here. And I think that, um, you know, the left is not really thinking this through when they're really quick to decry the June 12th summit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And um, we would love to have you back on again. Um, Christine on everyone should follow her on Twitter. Her name, her handle is just Christine on that's a H N is how you spell her last name. Uh, founder and international coordinator of women cross DMZ. And we will, we'd love to talk to you when you're back from your travels. Thanks so much, Katie. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. The Trump administration has officially decided to leave the UN Human Rights Council uh, over its treatment of Israel. So uh, let me break it down for you, give you all the facts, and then we're going to give our thoughts, which I'm sure will be spirited. This is from CNN. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley announced the United States is withdrawing from the U.N. Human Rights Council Tuesday, accusing the body of bias against U.S. ally Israel and a failure to hold human rights abusers accountable. The move, which the Trump administration has threatened for months, came down one day after the office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights slammed the separation of children from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border as unconscionable. Speaking from the State Department, where she was joined by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Haley defended the move to withdraw from the council, saying U.S. calls for reform were not heeded. Human rights abusers continue to serve on and be elected to the council, said Haley, listing U.S. grievances with the body. 
The world's most inhumane regimes continue to escape its scrutiny, and the council continues politicizing scapegoating of countries with positive human rights records in an attempt to distract from the abusers in its ranks. There is a lot to unpack here. Uh, Anti-Israel bias, we should just start there. Uh, and first of all, uh, Saudi Arabia is on the UN Human Rights Council. So it's not like this is some bastion of, of progressivism or human rights there. But the reason for the United States leaving is so laughable to me. First of all, Israel has been caught killing protester after protester after protester, peaceful protesters, children, press, wearing vests that clearly say that they are part of the media. And then you hear stories like this about Israel. Recording or taking unauthorized pictures of Israeli soldiers clashing with Palestinians could soon bring criminal charges and penalties if legislation proposed by members of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's hawkish coalition is enacted into law. On Sunday, the Israeli government endorsed the proposal, which seeks to criminalize the filming and or distribution of images and video footage showing certain Israeli military operations if the aim is hurting a soldier's spirit or harming national security. Oh, that good one. A conviction for such crimes could carry prison terms of five to ten years. So we are living in a, a country where it, our leaders basically don't think that Israel has done anything wrong. They are steadfast in their support of Israel. Uh, even even uh, clear, I, I would say, civil liberties violations such as this don't even raise an eyebrow when it comes to the Trump administration. And Nikki Haley is often perceived uh, in the media as one of the more reasonable members of the Trump administration. One when of the it, adults in the room. Right, adults like in the room. When it comes to Israel, there is no one more irrational and insane than Nikki Haley. I mean, I think that I like that. What is that thing that they're, they're floating? This law that would make it illegal to take pictures of um, video or, or pictures of Israeli soldiers clashing with Palestinians if it hurts could, a soldier's spirit right. or so harms I, national security. What I think security. is great about this is that what I'm hoping comes from this is a really kind of um, a new era of constructive criticism, like positive reinforcement and right. feedback. So what if I take a video and I film it and I'm like, hi, um, Yonatan, I'm Jewish, I can make references like that. Hi, Shlomo, uh, great work with that Palestinian protester. But if you like really use your core more, engage your core mm -hmm. more than like when you hit him with your gun, you could have like knocked him a couple more teeth out. Right. Then I'm not like harming the security or their spirit, because I'm not making the soldier feel dispirited. I'm not demoralizing him. In fact, maybe you're in that would increasing be. his six-pack. Exactly. Yeah. I'm increasing Prowess. his six-pack, and I'm also increasing national security for Israel. No. I mean, of course Trump is, doesn't want this. Uh, Trump supports this. He would love to have this here, right? right. Netanyahu and Trump are very similar. One's um, way smarter. Yeah. Oh my God. Netanyahu. Oh yeah. Well, Netanyahu hides his thuggishness behind a veneer of like civility, and you know he went to Harvard and everything. Um, Donald Trump is just you know, like you know a, a vulgar businessman, uh, really good, really, really, really great negotiator. But um, yeah, this is a joke. I mean, Israel's. Uh, Violations of human rights are kind of notorious, and they have a, they have their own get out of jail free card, which is that they always claim to be the subject of a double standard. You have people here. I mean, there's this term called PEP, progressive except on Palestine, which refers to people who are progressive on most issues, and right. we agree with them on most issues. And then when it comes to Israel, all of a sudden they're total right wing hawks. Um, 
who also, you know, they asked this rhetorical question, why Israel? Why are you just talking about Israel? Why are you talking about North Korea? Which is one of the dumbest questions ever. And the we reason don't we're fund talking North yeah. Korea's government. Yes, tell me, like, show me the the um, the politicians, the U.S. politicians who go back to North Korea, um, you know, who talk about having family there, go visit their family in North Korea. Um, you know, like Chuck Schumer, okay, Chuck Schumer, one of the leading Democrats, uh, minority speaker, um, he is minority leader, Senate minority leader. He said that the reason there isn't peace in the Middle East is because Muslims and Palestinians, they don't believe in the Torah. Right. This is a theocratic view, okay? Israel is allowed to do whatever it wants, and it faces no consequences. Now, if you want to make a comparison, you don't say, why not? Um, you don't say, what about uh, North Korea? Because North Korea, we constantly vilify. The United States vilifies. I mean, look. We are, are right now adjusting our, our diplomatic terms with them, that they're not allies. They're not people. The United States government talks about special relationship with Israel all the time. That in itself makes it um, appropriate to question their behavior. I think behavior. I know where you're going with this. Um, but wh where Saudi this, Arabia. Yeah, if you want to make a comparison, then you say, well, what about Saudi Arabia? And that is true. And we need to talk about Saudi Arabia. Again, the difference is the, the U.S. government kind of hides Trump less with his nice photo op of the orb. But the U.S. government traditionally doesn't really... Um, do the photo ops with Saudi leaders the way it does with Israeli leaders, right? Now, that's a, that's an issue. But again, everyone knows that Saudi Arabia is not a democracy. Nobody points to Saudi Arabia as this beacon of democracy the way that they do with Israel. So it's the funding of Israel, the pointing to it as a democracy, our special relationship with it, that really makes it appropriate to say, why is Israel doing this? But, and Israel may have democratic principles and democratic, you know, they may, they may vote. They may vote for, you know. Some of their population. Some yeah. of their population. It's only a fraction of right. the population, and then the rest of it is an apartheid state right. where they are subjugating an, an entire class and uh, ethnicity of, of people, and then we pretend like it doesn't exist, and we pretend like Israel is the one under attack right. when they are the ones that have all of this military support thrown behind them. Oh, yeah, and, they're and, the underdog, right. Right, but, like, just because... You know, they have a historical underdog story doesn't right. mean that's the exact same thing today, and states all, right. morph. You know, the United States used to have way better principles than it does now, but it's not the same. Just because you supported, uh, you know, Israel uh, uh, under a different leader um, doesn't mean that you have to support Netanyahu's Israel and what they're doing now. And, 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 but, and that's what bothers me most about leaving the UN Human Rights Council because, yeah, I know it sounds awful on paper, and just because they criticized our ridiculously draconian and cruel policy about separating families at the border. You know, you're going to be a baby and take your toy and run away. It, it, it's, it's absurd, and I understand that. But what bothers me even more is the propping up of Israel uh, by this administration. And it's a toxic mix of both pro-Israel donors in the United States, like Sheldon Adelson yeah. is at the, at, the, uh, at the head of that brigade. And Akari then, Seller's friend. Oh, lovely. And also... These Christian fundamentalists yeah. that support Donald Trump who think that if the Jews return to Israel and that it is their homeland, that they will— Like uh, 400 of us will survive and the rest of us burn in all for eternity. Right, and like no one and Jesus talks about back. how that is one of the most insane things to drive American foreign right. policy. the rapture. The rapture, and as you said, it's way more widespread than you would think. Even Chuck Schumer embraces some of the tenets of, of, of this fantasy land, right. of this— book that's thousands of years old and makes no sense in 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 the in the current day so it's it's a mixture of both and money, APAC, of course 
Right. An APAC, an APAC too, but I would put them in the money category. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, so you have the individual billionaires like Sheldon Adelson, then you have the, the institution of APAC, which is the American Israeli Political Action Committee. But yet, right, those two go hand in hand. And they actually really distort what it means to be Jewish in America because right. they become the face of, Amer of American Jewry. And that's not representative. They're just the well funded, politically connected, high profile ones. But they don't represent what most Jews feel about Israel, especially, I mean, the younger ones. That's really changing. So, so um, I agree. I mean, in terms of Schumer, it, of course, like Schumer doesn't believe in the rapture. He thinks these people are crazy, but he's fine allying himself with them. And he right. certainly is fine with appealing to the idea. His thing about the about the Torah is more, you know, the Old Testament, as I guess non-Jews or non-religious people call it. Um, that's because he's just trying to kind of make a cultural, like, uh, affinity, you know, with anti anti-Muslims and anti-Palestinians, anti-Arabs. Uh, he's not, I don't think he, he doesn't believe in, in like the word of God, but he's certainly fine with, with a theocratic framing. And basically what that is, is that's just a kind of um, racist, um, Islamophobic uh, kind of, yeah, uh, framing of it that makes them look less than civilized. Like these, are, these aren't real people we're dealing with. These are backwards people right. we're dealing with. They're not people of the book, which again is an embarrassing thing to hear a Jewish Modern and and it's, it's interesting to talk about this in the context of the, what's happening along the border because they really are two sides of the exact same coin. So this is a dehumanization yeah. of brown people just based on different philosophies. One is nationalism in the United States and the other one is Christian, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian values in the Middle East. So that's why they justify dehumanizing Palestinians and, 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 and uh, you know, Latina people coming over the border, immigrants. Um, and, and it's why... It, it really is uh, racism and corruption, the two driving forces behind this administration, and that's really where you can boil almost every single yeah. decision down to. We want to talk a little bit about something that was in the news. I actually saw Rachel Maddow breaking down, crying about it. She wasn't talking about Russia this time because this is an incredibly important topic. Uh, another disturbing wrinkle in the awful, awful border uh, family separation story. Uh, this comes out of the Associated Press, uh, breaking news, I guess, out of la as of last night. Trump administration officials have been sending babies and other young children forcibly separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border to at least three tender age shelters in South Texas, the Associated Press has learned. Lawyers and medical providers who have visited the Rio Grande Valley shelters describe playrooms of crying preschool-aged children in crisis. The government also plans to open a fourth shelter to house hundreds of young migrant children in Houston, where city leaders denounced the move Tuesday. Since the White House announced its zero-tolerance policy in early May, more than 2,300 children have been taken from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border, resulting in a new influx of young children requiring government care. So the talking point from the Trump administration, one of the ridiculous ones, they've had a variety of ones, you know, it's not a policy. Actually, it's an Obama-era policy, or we don't know anything about it. They've completely waffled on this because they're liars, uh, is that this is a continuation of President Obama's policy. That's, you know, I just alluded to that. That's incorrect. We like to criticize President Obama when we can, but this isn't true. So this is from PolitiFact. Immigration experts we spoke to said Obama-era policies did lead to some family separations, but only relatively rarely, and nowhere near the rate of the Trump administration. Obama generally 
refrain from prosecution in cases involving adults who cross the border with their kids, says Peter Margolis, an immigration law and national security law professor at Roger Williams University School of Law. In Trump's case, family separations are a feature, not a bug of the administration's border policies, says David Fitzgerald, who co-directs the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies. The family separations are not the small-scale collateral consequences of a border policy, but rather a deliberate initiative, he added. So again, I, I, I wanted to bring this up because, one, I wanted to talk about what's going on at the border with these tender age care facilities. It's just disgusting. And then also when we as a progressive community should criticize right. the Democrats and President Obama and when you have to know that the talking point uh, criticizing President Obama is coming from right-wing lies. So, uh, right. you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's always, it's so, it's not f funny. It's interesting that every now and then Trump will say something. I call this woke Trump. And I'm being sarcastic, obviously. I don't, yeah. Trump isn't woke. But I, it's like every now and then he'll come out saying something that sounds like he's, you know, criticizing Obama from the left. It's totally disingenuous, right? He did this with Hillary Clinton when he talked about how she, um, he brought up the super predators line, right? He called Obama the deporter-in-chief. Now, of course, this guy aspires to be the deporter-in-chief, Trump, right. right? So it is funny. Now, as you pointed out, there are times when we should and we have to kind of look at the democratic policies that inform the current policies. And the truth is, I mean, as the, the law professor that you quoted made this clear, that the Trump, the separation of children from their parents in this case is a feature, not a bug, right? And, you know, one of the things that's always different with Trump is that there is a discourse, and um, for sure, there's a hateful, racist, really scary discourse. I mean, we have the Mexicans are rapists, but then also the infestation lines, oh. which are very, I'm someone who thinks that Holocaust analogies can be overused and they kind of lose their, their, their um, potency. Because they're, you know, you know who else did that? The Nazis. But this really is. The infestation yeah. thing really does. Invaders was yeah. another one I saw from a Trump uh, surrogate on CNN. Yeah. An Aaron Burnett show. Because yeah. the infestation thing, just like the bugs and all the that Nazi imagery about right. Jews being right. like that. And, of course, this, you know, this is a... Uh, uh, this is something that Obama didn't do. Now we can we can like hold two thoughts in our heads at the same time, right? We can know that the Democrats have um, thrown immigrants under the bus, and that Obama did deport an unprecedented number of people. Uh, but we can also acknowledge that he did not um, oversee a policy like this, which was just kind of really like turning. I mean, it's basically a. Um, it's turning sadism and child abuse into a policy is what and, it is. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, what's so frustrating is that the, the Trump administration often banks on the tendency of the media to call things even. So, well, uh, the false equivalence. Well, yeah, the false equivalence. So, you know, they, they have been critical about him on uh, on this policy towards, you know, towards Donald Trump. I completely um, I will give the media credit for that. Right. They've been covering this. Uh, but eventually it's going to fade away. And then his... Uh, idea that, you know, the, the idea that he's putting out into the public that, you know, the Obama administration separated families as well, things will fade away and people will begin to call it even because he has no qualms right. about spreading misinformation. And some of that does stick. You throw enough of things in the, uh, enough mud at a wall and it's going to stick. And, and that's what scares me about this is that this 
policy will get blamed on the Democrats when it, you know, it re there really is no uh, way to feasibly do that. Yeah, I think that that's actually, yeah, one of the, the most dangerous thing about Trump is that he has a couple of, like, get-out-of-jail-free cars that are always there. One is that his his kind of, like, shtick, if you will, is that he's a bad boy, right? right. So he will never get in trouble for having an affair with um with anyone, like Stormy Daniels. He will never get in trouble for saying he would grab women by the pussy because his supporters either overtly or covertly like that about him, that he breaks the rules, right? The family what, values part. Yeah, 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 they do. Look, he didn't lose the evangelical support. We know that, right? I mean, we're all we're used to these right, people being a, hypocrites, it's, right? It's a Christian nationalism that's melded. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the, he, one of the other things he uses is the, the lack of faith in the media, right? So he really banks on people distrusting the media. So he can say that this is an Obama thing. He can say this is a Democrats thing. And then the evidence isn't there. Well, that's because the media is lying because we can't trust the media. Right. So you're right about that. I think that what the, the potential strength of this um, like tragedy is, is that if, if the media really does show and expose these families being ripped apart, because this is very stupid po uh, politics. It's awful policy, but I actually think it's stupid politics on Trump's part. And it's, and it's by the way, the 66% of Americans uh, supposedly, out of, uh, as of the last polling, are against this policy. Right. I think this is such a viscerally disgusting thing to watch, to see, read about. Um, I think the you know ProPublica released that audio of kids crying, and then you hear these um, ice... Border Patrol officers uh, laughing, saying in Spanish, like, oh, it's a chorus, um, referring to the sense that they're making. I think, honestly, that, like, and, and thank God that the media is finally talking about something other than Russia. Yeah. I mean, if we actually, God forbid, we focus on something that moves people and upsets people, as opposed to the constant Russia, this is really going to get Trump, land Trump in hot water. This, no, this is going to be his undoing. And it's not. So enough. Look, if, if, if he can be prosecuted or impeached because of Russia stuff, great. It's not going to help defeat Trumpism, first of all. And I don't even know if it's going to work for Trump as the individual. But this is the type of thing that we need to be organizing around. I mean, these are the types of issues that will reach people who aren't already anti-Trump. I really do think as much as people like to write off Trump supporters, um, there are two issues. One is that we need to reach um, voters who went from Obama to Trump. And then we also need to reach people who just stayed at home. And people who stayed at home, this is something, I think, this along with jobs, this is something that will viscerally get to people and make them want to leave and vote vote against Trump. Of course, you have to have the other pieces, which is what you're voting for. So you have to have candidates who are running on things besides Trump is evil. But I will say that, that um, saying, running against Trump saying that he will build a wall is less effective than running against Trump saying, look at the children he separated from his family right, and listen to their families. crying. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Like, this could be your child, this could be, you know. I think people who are anti-immigrant even do not want to see this happen. I mean, of course some do, and then someone's going to talk about an anecdote they have about their racist neighbor saying, lock them all up. Or, you know, the, I mean, it's absurd, the idea that you, this is what you get because you, you are fleeing this is basically the punishment you have for being a good parent who wants to save the life of your ch child is getting separated from your child. Because also, let's not forget, these people are, um, for the most part, running from fleeing countries where they are facing violence that the U.S. largely caused. I mean, you, this father um, who killed himself, we think, in Texas, in McKellen, yes. um, was found dead in a jail uh, in, at the end of May. He was found dead in a jail after being separated from his wife and son, three-year-old son. They had crossed the border. They're from Honduras. They had fled Honduras after his brother-in-law had been murdered. Right. Honduras is, of course, not to be 
but whatever, Honduras was, uh, became the uh, murder capital of the world, who was nicknamed that, after this coup that happened, a right-wing coup, which was um, supported by Hillary Clinton, who denied it was a coup, and wouldn't treat it as a coup in terms of funding and political sanctions. Um, but are any coups actually acknowledged? It's always the same, and by, no. by, especially by the United States right. government when we fund them especially in South America. No, yeah, that is our lane. Uh, this one was a little bit, this was one was more of like a back, like after the fact uh, support as, as opposed to beforehand. But we definitely, other countries in Central America and in Latin America, the um, Organization of American States, they wanted to treat this as a coup. They wanted to wait for the, the president who had been taken out. Not a coup, the president was just, you know, escorted from his home in his pajamas and put on a helicopter, as right. is as happens in democracy, happens. yeah. But um, so, so this man was... Sorry, yeah, yeah this, this man, this is just an example of, like, we are causing the policies that are creating the violence and destabilization that then leads these people to try to seek sa safety. And it's not like they're looking for an upgrade, like a better view. Uh, these people are, like, looking to live and not be killed. And then we send them back to the violence that they're fleeing, or we traumatize the kids here. And, of course, look, without equating, I think we can... Going back to your question, it's very important to to do to you know walk chew gum and walk at the same time. We can acknowledge that there is some continuation between other administrations, other politicians, and Trump. Hillary Clinton said she thought that kids shouldn't be uh, should be sent back because she doesn't because she wants to send a powerful message. She said this when she was running, right? Because because deterrence, deterrence for immigration exactly. works. It works every kids time. are the ones who are like, you know what, mom and dad, I'm not going to cross the border because there's I don't you know dangerous precedent, dangerous deterrence. By the way, statistical evidence that deterrence and policies like this don't work. Right. And when Trump came into office, immigration was at below net zero, meaning more people were leaving than were coming in. It's a made up problem and a made up right. solution to that yeah. problem. Come out to our live taping June 30th at um, Caveat. At Caveat. And by the way, always use the, the hashtag KT Help Show. That's letter K, letter T, H E L P S H O W. Tell us if you have any guest suggestions, suggestions for anything. Anything you want us to do segments about? You want us to go and like physically go to a place in New York City? We'll do that. Yeah, we're here for you. We're here for you, yeah. Um, okay. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. We will be doing a live taping of the Katie Halper Show on June 30th at Caveat in New York City. That's 21A Clinton Street. And you can go to caveat.nyc to get tickets and get them for a discounted price if you go now. You can use the promo code KHALPERINSIDER. That's K-H-A-L-P-E-R-I-N-S-I-D-E-R. Again, that's KHALPERINSIDER. And our special guest will be none other than Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank, of course, is the author of Listen Liberal or Whatever Happens to the Party of the People and What's the Matter with Kansas. He writes for places like Harper's, The Guardian, and he is the founder of The Baffler magazine. And Thomas Frank has a brand spanking new book coming out called Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society, and it's a collection of his writings. See you there.